In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 22, starting from verse 24, and we will end actually at verse 46. Uh, what the events of this chapter actually, from verse 24, happened on Covenant Thursday, after the Lord gave his body and his blood to the disciples. And before he went to Gethsemane, to the garden, where he prayed and then he got arrested. And it is surprising to know that immediately after they took communion, there was actually a dispute, a conflict happened between the apostles. As we read in verse 24, now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And here actually I want to warn all of us that immediately after any church activity, after any spiritual activity, after communion, Satan is lying in wait to take this blessing from us, to take this grace from us, to tempt us with sin. That's why you need to be very, very careful. We saw here how after communion, there was ambitious contentions occurred between the apostles. Who is the greatest? And these words, uh, and, and this event actually, and the Lord's word after this, are very peculiar to St. Luke, not mentioned in Matthew or Mark or in uh, John. Uh, and it's strange that after they saw the character of our Lord Jesus Christ on display in almost every possible circumstance, and how he washed their feet, how he was very humble. And now, at the final hours, before his betrayal, before his arrest, before his crucifixion, and he declared to them that one of them will betray him tonight. But in spite of all of this, they argued about which of them was the greatest. Apparently, this was a common topic of conversation among them. What was mentioned several times, like in Matthew 18, in Matthew 20, in Mark 9, in Luke 9. So this was not the first time to argue about who is the greatest among them. They were asking, who was the greatest? Was it St. Peter? because the Lord promised him the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of king, uh, keys of kingdom. Is it St. John who reclined on the master's chest? Is it St. Andrew who had been f the one who was first called? Uh, and maybe we think that the Lord 
will settle this argument by pointing out that me, Jesus, I am the greatest. What are you discussing? But the Lord Jesus Christ answered this question not by who he is, but what he did. Not by who he is, I am God who became man. No, he did not answer this. But by what he did. Let us see the answer of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you on the contrary. He who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one as the one who serves. So he's telling them, I am among you as the one who serves. If you want to be the greatest, follow my example. Don't think about a title or a position. No. Be a servant to your brothers. Then you will be the greatest. Even in the secular world, when they differentiate between different styles of leadership, they say the best leader is the servant leader. The best leader, the best style of leadership is servant leader. Uh, we read in John chapter 13 that the Lord Jesus Christ washed their feet after supper. And maybe he spoke these words about the true greatness as he washing their feet or just after he finished washing their feet. Uh, and here also we can see the absolute patience of our Lord Jesus Christ. How he corrected the disciples who were struggling with power and position, correcting them gently. And instead of rebuking them, are you fighting who is the greatest while I'm telling you I'm going to be arrested tonight and one of, the, of you is going to betray me tonight? No, he gently corrected them. Uh, yes, definitely he was preoccupied with the events that will happen this night, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, all the suffering that he will go through. But in spite of all these things that's preoccupying his mind, he gently taught them and corrected them. The desire for temporal greatness causes a division among the brothers. That's why the Lord told them, 
the world exercise authority and power with certain style. All of it ultimately self-exalting. They exalt themselves. But Jesus was not like that. I neither should his follower be like that. In fact, the greatest should be like the younger in age or the one who is not favored by society like the outcast. And the one who governs should be like the one who serves. That is the way to true greatness. The world gave the title of benefactor to those who were great in power only. But in the kingdom of Christ, the true greatness was only attained by benefiting others in the humblest services. By benefiting others in the humblest services. So the Lord used this opportunity to explain to the disciples the nature of his kingdom. He assures them that it is established on a different principle from those of the world. Uh, in the kingdom of Christ, you should not expect titles, power, but rather to be a servant. He that would be most advanced in the kingdom of Christ is the most humble one. Uh, and he, prov he proves, the Lord Jesus proves his proposition by his own example. Uh, he was among them as the one who serves. He girded his waist like a slave with a linen towel and washed the feet of the disciples. In the secular world, usually the world envy the person that, who is served by others. But in the kingdom of Christ, the Lord Jesus showed us that the true greatness, not in being served, but in serving others. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others. When all what you want is to serve, then you will be no longer uh, concerned how to gain honor or credit. And you will not be disappointed or having your feeling hurts because I am here to serve. Then the Lord, after he gently corrected them, he actually confirmed them and supported them. In verse 22, he told them, but you, you are those who have continued with me in my trials. You waited with me until my crucifixion, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So, as if the Lord is told them, 
if you become humble and you serve the others, I will honor you in the kingdom of heaven. So we notice here in verse 28, a kind of loving tenderness in his recognition of their faithfulness after he gently rebuked their jealous ambition. He told them, I appreciate and I value your support to me, the support that I received during all my ministry. Their faithfulness stood out at that hour in strong contrast with the conduct of Judas. Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, but they were faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why they also will be sharers in his glory as they have been sharers in his affliction. I will bestow, bestow on you a kingdom, a kingdom not a temporal one, but spiritual and eternal one. Uh, verse 28 and 29 reflect that he does not only call upon them to leave their vain glory, but also to carry the cross and to share the suffering with the Lord if they want to share the glory with him. As St. Paul said in Romans 6, 5, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So the Lord promised the disciples that they will be his heirs and they inherit his kingdom. He will serve them at his table in heaven and they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. The Lord Jesus serves his faithful servant and disciples at his table of the altar at every Eucharistic celebration of the liturgy. Just because on the Eucharistic altar, he served us with offering his body and his blood. So in every liturgy, the Lord is serving us by offering his body and his blood given for us for salvation, remission of sins, and eternal life to those who partake of him. But he will also serve his disciples at his banquet when he returns in his second coming to claim his bride, the church, at the wedding feast of the Lamb in the heavenly sanctuary, as we read in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 to 9. When the Lord Jesus speaks here of being blessed with eternal kingdom, this doesn't mean literally eating and drinking and sitting on seats. When he told them, you will eat with me and drink, because in heaven there is no eating and drinking in, in a physical way or sitting in a physical way. We read in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not food and drink. It rather means a state of everlasting satisfaction. So when the Lord told them, you will eat, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, 
it can refer eating and drinking at his table, the altar, eating his body and drinking his blood, but also means in, in the eternal life being in a state of continuous and permanent satisfaction. Satisfaction. Sincerely of Alexandria says, he describes the spiritual matters by means of the analogy in the present current life. We understand the eating and drinking. So he describes the spiritual matter in the analogy of the present current life. For this is counted a great privilege for people to sit with kings at their table and share them their food. Here on earth, it's a privilege when you sit with a king and eat with him. So the Lord using the same analogy uh, in the kingdom of heaven. St. Cyril of Alexandria continues, The Savior Thervor drives away from the holy apostles the affliction of pride. They might perhaps think among themselves and even say, what will be the reward of faithfulness confirmed by the hope of the blessings that are in store, they throw away from their mind or laziness in virtuous pursuit. So, sincerely saying, after the Lord rebuked them and drove away from their mind the jealousy and ambition, pride, now they start to think, what's our reward? So the Lord confirmed their reward in, in heaven uh, that they will be in a state of everlasting satisfaction. And this actually will be motivation to put away or laziness uh, in, in their virtuous pursuits. Verse 31, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Simon, Simon, the repetition of the name gave combined importance and tenderness to the request. So the Lord, there is emphasis here. What I'm going to tell you is important, but he is saying it in a tender way. Simon, Simon. Satan has asked, as he asked God to tempt Job, Satan takes permission before tempting us. Satan has asked, he may test and try the apostles. The devil had a mind to disturb them all by his temptation. This is called sifting. Sifting. Christ will sift his church, but the sifting of Christ is totally different, is completely the opposite of the sifting of the devil. The sifting of Christ is to purify the flower. Purify his flower. He sifts a certain soul to purify it from the lusts and the corruption. 
But Satan, on the contrary, saved the soul and the church merely to give them trouble, to make them lose their peace, their hope, by continual confusion, turmoil, and disturbance. Already Satan tempted Judas, and he won, Satan won Judas to be one of his soldiers. Yes, the heart of man is the battlefield, but the real conflict is between God and the devil. So when the devil tempts us, his intention is God, not us. So the real war, the real conflict between Satan and God, but he is using us because we are his children, the children of God. Here we can see Satan overruling Judah's heart and taking absolute control over his greed. Satan also wants to overrule the heart of the rest of the apostles. Satan cannot invade our life and tempt us without any permission. has to get permission. Jesus used Simon Peter in particular because Simon Peter was known for his impulsiveness. Satan will tempt everybody from the apostles. But why the Lord chose Peter? Because Peter was impulsive. Uh, maybe Peter was the one arguing who is the greatest. Uh, or maybe Peter, when he heard the word of Christ, you are those who will be firm in my trials. So he counted himself among those who will be steadfast in, his, uh, uh, in the trials of the Lord Jesus Christ. So maybe he tempted with pride or vainglory, especially he was the oldest among the apostles. That's why the Lord wanted to reveal to Peter his weakness the weakness of human nature to be careful lest Satan overrule his heart. And each one of us should see in ourselves our personal weakness. Yes, I know I am weak, but in Christ I'm strong. But I should actually be aware of my weakness, otherwise I will be easily tempted by pride and vainglory. Judas stand for the betrayal, but Peter stand for the weakness. Pope Shenouda used to say, the sin of Judas is a sin of betrayal, but the denial of Peter is a sin of weakness. Big difference between a sin of betrayal and a sin of weakness. Sin of weakness needs help from God in order to be steadfast and strong. Uh, that's why the Lord told him, I prayed for you that you may be strong, that your faith 
will not fail. And you will receive grace to help you, to support you. And that's why when you return back to me, with this grace that will be overflowing, go and confirm your brothers also. I prayed for you. So, there is partial and total failing of faith. For Peter, it was partial. So when the Lord prayed for him, his faith was confirmed. Uh, it was partial when he denied Christ because the seed of God abode in him. His faith did not wholly fail like Judas. In sin of betrayal, the faith is totally lost. But in the sense of weakness, the faith is partially lost. Also, the rest of the apostles, all of them fled during the time of crucifixion. So the faith of all the apostles partially lost during this time. And the true disciples of Christ, maybe during the time of weakness, their faith will be partially lost. But Christ is interceding on our behalf by his blood in the heavenly places. And the saints are praying for us so our faith will be strengthened and will be confirmed. St. Augustine thinks that the prayer of Christ for the sake of Peter did not limit the free will of St. Peter. So this prayer helped Peter if Peter want to accept help. So the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ for Peter did not cancel the free will of Peter. So the Lord Jesus Christ did not oblige Peter not to fall. He gave him the divine support. And it is Peter's choice whether to, uh, either to accept this support or to refuse it. And the temptation of Satan came to all the apostles and all of them fell. But Peter, much worse, by far, he fell more than the rest of the apostles. But the result of his fall was not hopelessness and despair like in the case of Judas, but rather it was bitter remorse, tears, and brave repentance. Peter replied in verse 33 and said to the Lord, but he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. You can sense in his reply there is a hidden tone of offense. Why are you directing these words to me? I am ready to be go to prison and even to die with you. So the Peter was offended, but also 
there is a tone of devo devotion. I am ready to die with you. So you can see in his reply both offense and devotion. Peter most probably have resented the thought that even he needs a special prayer from Christ uh, that his, fail, uh, his faith will not fail. Peter was overconfident. He thought within himself that he is able to share all the Lord's suffering even unto death. Peter felt brave at that moment. But very, very soon after he was intimidated by a little silver girl, he denied to her that even he knew Jesus. Usually this kind of overconfidence is a sign of weakness. That's why the Lord said to him in verse 34, then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. So the Lord who reads our heart, he knew very well that Peter will deny the Lord at this very night. And he told him the truth about himself and the situation. Not to discourage him, but to let him know that there is a spiritual reality and a spiritual battle he is unaware of. The spiritual reality, you are weak. And in, in the battle, you will fall. That's why I prayed for you. I know this very well. On the denial of St. Peter, St. Ambrose says, I do not criticize Peter's denial, but I praise his weeping. The one is common nature, but the other is peculiar to virtue. He say, all of us who are weak, all of us, we deny Christ every day when we sin. So that's common for everyone. But the, his weeping and his repentance is peculiar to virtue. That's why St. Ambrose said, I am not criticizing Peter for his denial, but rather I am praising his weeping and his repentance. Here the Lord called to Peter to encourage him, not Simon, but Peter. And this is maybe the only occasion on which our Lord Jesus Christ uh, is recorded to have used to him the name he gave, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So while the Lord is reminding him with his weakness, he is also reminding him that I give you the name Peter, which means like stone, rock, so don't be discouraged. So the Lord reminded him of his strength. You remember when you said you are Christ, the son of the living God? I told you, you are Peter. 
and on this rock I will build my church. So the Lord reminded him with his weakness, you will deny me, but also with his strength. The Lord knew Peter, knew his heart, better than Peter knew himself. And the Lord, uh, Lord foreknew what will happen to Peter, what was to come, and what would befall him. Therefore, the Lord declares it clearly to Peter that this will happen. You will deny me three times even uh, before the rooster crow. So the Lord asked Peter to remain persistent till the end. And we should know in the time of temptation, you cannot uh, defeat Satan by yourself. If Peter was able to do it by himself, then why the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for Peter? We need the grace of God. So when you are tempted by Satan for any sin, the first thing you must do Cry to God, my Lord Jesus Christ, help me. O Holy Trinity, have mercy upon me. You need to cry for the grace of God. Then after this, the Lord actually switched the dialogue to another uh, thing. Verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack or sandals, do you remember when the Lord sent the 12 and the, uh, the 72? He told them, take no money bag with you, take uh, no sandals, not, no two tunics, nothing. So now he is asking them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack or sand and sandals, did you lack anything? So he said nothing. Then he said to them, But now, he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. The whole instant, this whole instant and dialogue is very peculiar to St. Luke. You will not read it in Matthew or Mark or John. The Lord speaks one more word to his own disciples before leaving the upper room and going to the garden. He warned Peter. Now he is warning all of them. And the Lord was more occupied with the future trials of his disciples than his own tragic destiny that will happen on, on Good Friday. So he asked them a question. Did you lack anything? Did you want anything? Did not God fully provide for you? He refers to this to convince them that his words were true. In your past experience, when I told you, don't take money with you, don't take sandals, don't take anything with you, and 
you lacked nothing, now you should have confidence in me and in my words. Now I am about to leave you. I will die on the cross. And now you should be ready for a different life after my resurrection and my ascension. I will not be with you on earth anymore. So, the disciples were sent out to ministry before without Christ. And during this time, they were received with goodwill and hospitality. But now after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will face a hostile world and they should be prepared even to be murdered for the name of Christ. So, when the Lord told them, if you don't have a sword, sell your garment and buy one, did really the Lord meant a sword in a literal way? Definitely not. It was one of those metaphors that the Lord used in his teaching. And perhaps the purpose of two swords, get two swords, was to offer another opportunity to work a miracle in front of his enemies when he healed when Peter misunderstood the Lord and used the sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest and the Lord performed a miracle to his enemy, the soldiers that came to arrest him. But this direction about a knapsack, purse, bag, sword, uh, were not made with reference to take these things actually to the garden. The Lord spoke these words around maybe 9 p.m. So even they cannot buy these things at night. And after this, he went to the, garment, to the garden and then he was arrested and then the trial. So when the Lord told them, take sword and take uh, money bag, he, he didn't mean for tonight. But actually, he was speaking about the future life, but in a metaphorical way. That's why these words should not be understood literally. He, the Lord definitely refused to equip the disciples with swords. He said to Peter, don't use the sword. Those who kill by the sword will be killed by the sword. And do you think that when the disciples told him we have two swords, if the Lord actually meant literally swords and he told them it is enough, do you think two swords will be enough for 11? So definitely if he means sword, two will never be enough for, uh, for, for 11. Uh, In verse 38, so they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. <laughs> if you think about it, if, if, if there is an, an army coming to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ, many, many people crowd with clubs and with swords. And, and then two swords will be enough. 
said definitely you, we cannot understand this uh, literally. And as I told you, the Lord forbade Peter from using the sword uh, when he cut off the ear of uh, Malchus. So the phrase here is expressive of the danger they would be exposed to and of their need of protection. So as if the Lord is telling them in your ministry after my ascension, you will face a hostile world and you need the sword of the Spirit to protect you. You need the heavenly and divine grace to protect you. So you must now expect your enemies will be more violent against you. And you need not earthly weapons, but heavenly weapons. Maybe at that time the apostles understood the Lord to mean really earthly weapons. But the Lord was speaking about the weapons of the spiritual warfare. The sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit is the sword with which the disciples of Christ must equip themselves. As St. Paul spoke about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 36, sorry, 37. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he made a quote from the Old Testament and he was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. So here the Lord quoted Isaiah 53 verse 12. And this means the Lord will die the death of a criminal and between two criminals. Yes, one of them repented. So, clearly again, the sword could not be for his defense as they carelessly assumed. The tragic end of his earthly ministry is close at hand. That's why he told them, for things concerning me have an end. The prophetic description of the suffering servant of the Lord will soon be found to have been terribly accurate. What Isaiah wrote about the servant of the Lord and his suffering in Isaiah 53, every single prophecy will be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was a hint given to the disciples before the Passion that they might learn when it happens that it was part of the divine purpose that Christ should suffer. So it has not happened by coincidence. No, even Isaiah prophesied about it hundreds of years before the suffering of Christ. So here he showed them what he meant. As disciples of Jesus, the one who is treated as criminal, they should expect in their ministry hatred, persecution, murder, as happened to him. 
But again, as I told you, the disciples thought that he is speaking literally about swords. So in verse 38, so he said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So the Lord did not mean two swords will be enough to battle the crowd that comes to arrest me. Definitely two swords will not be enough. But his meaning would be all clear to them soon. So he closed the dialogue with this word, it's enough. Declining to enter into the matter any further. He told them, okay, it's enough for this discussion right now. You will understand later. So he is leaving them to meditate on his words. Because if you think about it logically, two swords will not be enough to defend him. So he told them, it's enough means it's enough to discuss says, this subject. Verse 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. So now he left the upper room where he ate the Passover and where he ate the Eucharist with the disciples and washed their feet and gave them the uh, final uh, discourse and his prayer to the Father. After all of this, so uh, now he went to the garden in the Mount of Olives. This scene actually is recounted in detail in uh, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. Matthew gave the most complete account. Luke, Luke's account about what happened in Gethsemane is the shortest, but it, cont it contains a story of the angelic mission of help uh, and the bloody sweat that Matthew and Mark did not mention. So although this account is the shortest in Luke, but he mentioned two things that neither Matthew or Mark mentioned. According to Matthew and Mark, the place on the Mount of Olives is described as Gethsemane. Gethsemane means or signifies oil press, oil press. It was a garden, one of the many fascinating gardens, which Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us uh, all the Jerusalem was flourished with all these gardens. I want you to pay attention to the word as he was accustomed. So it was the practice of the Lord Jesus Christ and his custom for several nights past to go to this place. And he refused to change this routine. Although he foreknew that Judas will find him easily because he was accustomed to go there and Judas will go to this place. So if the Lord wanted to run away, he would change the place. But he went to the place as he was accustomed to tell us that I am going to the cross by my own will and by my own authority. So this shows the willingness of Christ 
to be crucified, to suffer and to die. Because if he is not willing, he would have gone to another place that Judas didn't know. And the disciples would feel uh, why also he, he went to the usual place as he was accustomed. So the disciples would feel that everything as usual. And it will be less struck to them if he made any immediate uh, change in the custom to go to another place and they would feel strange. What is this? What's going to happen right now? Verse 40, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. As I told you, no one can face the temptation without the grace of God. That is the advice of Christ to all of us. We need prayer all the time, lest we fall into temptation. Even Jesus himself prayed for strength to pass this difficult ordeal to come. The disciples had their own ordeal to face and needed more than anything to pray that you may not enter into temptation, meaning to give into temptation. According to Matthew and Mark, this was said to them after he prayed first time and returned to the disciples and found them sleeping, so he told them, pray, lest you enter into temptation. Verse 41, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone throw, and he knelt down and prayed. So he withdrew a little apart from them and offers his prayer of submission to the will of the Father. When he said, let it be according to your will, not according to my will. The Lord's prayer reminds us that he was fully God, but also he is fully man, God-man. In his humanity, he was in anguish over the suffering that he was about to endure. Uh, verse 42, saying, he prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So apparently an eyewitness told Luke about the prayer. Why? Only eyewitness will remember the detail that it was about a stone throw away from the disciple. Maybe Peter, maybe John, maybe James told Luke about this. Jesus knew what the will of the Father is. 
Yet he was in great agony of the soul. The agony did not come from any lack of desire to do the will of God. But the agony because Jesus would go to the cross as a sacrifice of sins. Meaning what? He will carry all our sins. St. Paul, he said, he became sin. He became curse. That is the agony. He was, the agony is not to fulfill the cross. The agony is that the holiest one became sin. He was not victim of circumstances before, beyond his control. He came to the cross by his own will. He went to the cross with full knowledge. And he willingly decided to lay down his life. So what is this cup that he is speaking about? In the Old Testament, the cup is a powerful picture of wrath and judgment of God. As we read in Psalm 75 verse 8, Isaiah 51 17, Jeremiah 25 verse 15. So the cup did not represent the death, but the judgment and the wrath of God. So Jesus carried our sins. Now he has to drink the cup of the Father's judgment. So when he drank, drank this cup, we will not drink it. We will be justified. So, the Redeemer asked the Father if the cross was the only means of saving the souls and if this is the only way, I am willing to take it. So, underlying this awful agony the intensity of which we are completely incapable to grasp. None of us can, is able to grasp the agony of the Lord when he stood before the Father as sin and as a curse. But beneath it, he has the deepest desire to do the will of the Father and his own will to save us. Because as we say in our hymns, by his own will and the pleasure of the Father and the Holy Spirit, he came and saved us. So it is the will of the Son, exactly like the will of the Father and the Holy Spirit, to save us. So that will was in reality his own will. And we see an angel appeared to him from heaven. Exactly like after he was tempted by Satan, the three temptations, angels supported him and strengthened him and served him. And in the tradition, they say this angel, when appeared to the Lord, said to him, Zion is the power, the kingdom, the glory, and the majesty. And that's why we took, we took the uh, praise of this angel and we, we make it our own praise during the Holy Week 
Soktatigum, thine is the power, the kingdom, the majesty. So, in response to the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father did not take the cup from Jesus, but strengthened Jesus by sending an angel to strengthen, to tell him, thine is the power, the, the blessing, the glory, the majesty. So he may drink the cup. Now we can understand what, Peter, what, what Paul said in Hebrews, that the Father listened to the prayer of Jesus. Yes, he sent an angel to strengthen him, to support him, because he was fully human as he is fully divine, to sustain the great burden that was upon his soul, the angel to support this great burden upon his soul. It was as necessary that the fullest evidence should be given not only for his divinity but for his humanity. And we can see how his he is perfect in his humanity and we can see it clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane. His miracles attested for his divinity and his agony attested for his humanity. His hunger, his weariness, his agony in the Garden, his death, his burial, all these are proofs of his humanity. And I want to also to pay attention to these words. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. In verse uh, 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he prayed, he repeated the same word that he said before, but with great eagerness. It means intense struggle and pressure of spirit. This account of the sweat, uh, bloody sweat, is mentioned only by Luke. And these two verses, 43 and 44, are subject of some debate uh, among biblical scholars. But St. Luke was a physician, and he recorded more diligently the things which belonged to his profession, and he had good knowledge of that's why maybe Matthew and Mark did not mention the, the bloody sweat. And it should not be of any objection to the truth and credibility of them because they are not mentioned by Matthew and Mark. Since it is usual for them that one records something and other did not record it. So maybe Luke recorded because he was a physician but Matthew and Mark did not record it. And these words, uh, like great drops of blood, the word like here, we should not understand it that in a figurative way. No, it was real blood. And now actually medicine says, when a person in, in agony, 
these uh, capillaries, small capillaries, can burst and the sweat become bloody. So science and medicine now proves what's written in, 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 in the Gospel of St. Luke is credible. And St. Athanasius actually pronounced a ban upon those who deny the bloody sweat, like excommunication, for those who deny the bloody sweat. Uh, some commentator tried to say, under abnormal pathological circumstances, you may have a sweaty blood. But, and some actually commentators unfortunately omitted these two verses from some versions of the Bible, verse 43 and verse 44. But in the most ancient and approved copies of the scripture, like the two old, two oldest and most authoritative translation, the, uh, the Itala Latin and the Bishitu Syriac, verse 43 and 44 exist. And also, early writers like Justin the Martyr and Irenaeus mentioned the, the bloody sweat of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we should not discredit its history just because it is a strange and unusual kind of sweat. Uh, to the extent some early church father said, if it never happened before or after Christ that a person has blood sweat, and if it was singular, it ought to be credited, and we should believe it. But as I told you, medicine now says when a person under pressure, the small capillaries can burst and the sweat uh, can be bloody. And to respond to those who said sweaty blood can come from abnormal pathological condition, early church father said, no, this blood sweat did not arise from a pathological state of body. No, Jesus' body was well and healthy, free from diseases, as it was proper it should be in order to do the work and endure suffering he did. He was a lamb without blemish. And also the bloody sweat did not arise from external heat or a fatiguing journey. But the agony in Gethsemane and the bloody sweat of the Lord Jesus Christ prove the truth of his human nature. This bloody sweat shows that he had a true and real body as other men. Also, the anxiety of his mind proves that he had a reasonable soul capable of grief and sorrow as human souls are. He is perfect divine, but also he is perfect human. Also, this bloody sweat and agony prove that his being made sin, as St. Paul said, 
and a curse for us, and he's sustaining our sins and the wrath of God. Also, the, the church father said, do you think it is not suitable to him and not worthy of him to sweat in this manner whose blood was about to shed for to be shed for the sins of his people and who came by blood and water and from whom both were to flow from his side signifying that both sanctification and justification are from him so they say is it not suitable for him to sweat uh, with blood the one about uh, whose uh, whose blood was about to be shed and blood and water will be gushed from his side blood for our sanctification and water for our justification in baptism then the last two verses in our bible study tonight verse 45 and 46 when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Again, it is a character of St. Luke to uh, explain why. And Matthew and Mark mentioned they were asleep but St. Luke explaining why they were asleep because he was a physician from psychological point of view and physiological point of view because of the grief and sorrow the sensation of grief which they felt at the sight of their master's distress was overpowering them so they sunk into sleep and I'm sure all of us experience when there is like a big burden or a big problem. So sometimes our body cannot handle it. That's why we become sleepy. Uh, the Lord had showed them how exceeding sorrowful he was. And they might perceive by his looks and gesture the anxiety and distress of mind he was in. So they saw in his, in his face, in his gesture, in his expression, he's very, very uh, sorrowful. He is very uh, anxious. That's why this sorrow made them sleepy. Also, he had given them some warning that he will be betrayed by one of them. Also, he spoke about his suffering and his death and his speedy departure from them. All of these things made them sorrowful. Because of these things, sorrow had filled their heart, and this had induced heaviness and sleep upon them. It was truly strange, heavy sleep, which seems to have paralyzed the eleven in Gethsemane. The disciples were also filled with sorrow. But instead of praying, they slept. Uh, the Lord warned them and told them, watch, watch and pray, 
but instead of praying, they fell in sleep. As I told you, Matthew and Mark mentioned in detail what happened in the garden. And according to Matthew and Mark, Jesus came to the apostles three times. And the three times he found them sleeping. Uh, and the Lord prayed three times. In every time he prayed was like a victorious submission to the will of the Father. The first time the Lord said to Peter, could you not watch with me one hour, according to Matthew and Mark? Second time, he did not speak to them. Third time, it was too late. He finished his prayer. So now he bids his disciples to rise up to pray. As he said in verse 46, rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. So as if suggesting an attitude that should help them against sleep in the future in their ministry. And this is a warning against temptation. Uh, and we can see here, the Lord is giving them a warning, but he did not say a word of reproach either to Peter or the, to the rest. He did not rebuke them for sleeping, but he was giving them advice, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. We'll conclude Bible study tonight at verse 46. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.